Level two, Lichen Lab. So I kind of like that swirling that it was doing. You got it. So this looks this looks fun. You guys are flying kites. Yes, we are. We're flying kites. Uh, so why why are you guys flying fish kites? It's a project by artist Ed Pien. Um, he's one of the artists involved with the You Are Here series and Lichen Lab. And he's responding to issues around water and climate change. By flying kites. Yes. Uh, there, I mean, there is a lot, a lot more to it than that. But, I mean, basically, he worked with different youth groups to make images responding to the fate of freshwater fish. And this is the brilliance of Ed in that one would normally think, okay, you do a workshop, these kids make paintings, and then you put the paintings on a wall and people come and look at them. Right. And so you make like a mini exhibition for them. But we wanted it to be much more than that. We wanted it to be more engaging, more interesting, more, you know, taking it uh, further in terms of the social interaction. So that Ed came up with this idea that we would actually commission a guy who makes kites to print. We ended up getting 30 of them printed. And then the people who were involved with making the images, plus the general public, others came to a couple of different public events and could take turns, and we would have all 30 kites up in the sky flying and, and different people taking turns flying them. And it makes sense from being fish. I mean, the, like the kites and the fish thing is they were swimming across the sea of the sky. That's that, you know, you were, you were able to get, even though there was no water yeah. anywhere near it, the water was there because you would like, it made you think about it because you suddenly saw this shoal of fish swimming across the sky, and it, and it brought that that. The, yeah. the ideas of water then became very prominent in that. So. Yes. We did it with the Galt Museum, and we also did it at a, a basically a sports day at the university. Where there was rugby t games being played and other yeah. things going on. We were flying at the stadium. So we had people coming up and asking us, and so then we ended up, you know, chatting with them and talking to them. And so we did have a conversation. So people also, well, that's the thing, that, like, why they, did they all have fish on them? What's the fish thing? And why are you doing that? And then we could explain the, the project to them. So, so this is like the public engagement thing that you guys are talking about with Lichen Lab. Or yes. Where it's not just getting the public involved in making the kites. It's also the people who see the kites and then everybody... Yes, and also that interacts. they go away and they talk about it afterwards. So, right. you know, they have stories to tell about yeah. it. And that they associate the art gallery with having fun. So <laughs> you're not associating the art gallery with being told to shut up and not yeah. touch anything. Yeah. And also, you know, going to an art gallery and not understanding yeah. the contemporary art. So yeah. the idea of that people can see working with an artist and working with a curator and, and with art gallery, that it can actually be something that connects with your life in a fun way. So the kite... It's a strange tool. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I mean, and it was this absolutely amazing experience. I mean, doing it, it worked out. I mean, it worked out in the ways that I thought it would work out. That we had, you know, 100 people come, you know, fly the kites. In a gale and, force wind. <laughs> yeah, in a gale force wind. <laughs> but the part that was just magic, especially at the Galt Museum, the groups who came to fly the kites were the new immigrants and also newly arrived exchange students at the university. And so they were mostly people who don't speak English, who are learning English. And these are adults who are like competent people in their, wherever they lived before they came here in, you know, Syria or Nigeria yeah. or wherever they were. And then they come to Canada and you become this incompetent person who has, you know, yeah, speaks only this basic... because you can't speak the language. Because you can't speak the language. And, and, you know, these are people who survived wars and, and all these incredibly horrific um, difficulties to get here. Right. And 
they were able both just to let go and have fun, but it was also that you had people who already knew how to fly kites. So some of the Syrian guys they were, were really good at yeah. it. And so they were working with they other people and they were not using words to explain what to do. You would just show each other and they're, they're running and they're like yeah. really having a good time. Uh, and then when we were at the sports stadium, we had a lot of little kids and they'd never flown a kite before. Uh-huh. And so they thought it was going to be like holding a balloon or something that yeah. it was like this passive yeah. thing. And this is what ties back in with Alvinoe, that it's like this active yeah. and this engaged because they realized that there was a force being exerted. Yeah. So there's like a, a little bit of learning about physics, um, but it was mostly that they could see themselves as agents. You'd see yeah. these little like four or five year old kids and they understood that they had to, that was when there wasn't the gale force winds. They had to run a bit. It was actually really good that day because uh, it was it was a sort of blustery day. So there were these periods where the wind was very yeah. strong and then all like, all the mums and dads would pile in and be flying the kites. Yeah. And, like, you know, and then the wind would drop and then the adults would sort of lose interest because they couldn't get the, and then all the little kids would come in and pick up the kites and run with them behind them and they would just be sufficient tonight so that they wouldn't, you know, burn their hands through the strings and, yeah. and, and so it was just exactly the right thing for like a four-year-old to fly a kite okay so alvin always come up a lot and i haven't done the reading <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic the classic classic did you miss anything <laughs> you missed class <laughs> can we just give me like a like a quick primer so I'm not untethered uh, for the sure. conversation. I can start, I think, with a kind of like <laughs> yeah. what I've taken from yeah. this. The really simple kind of idea is that what Alvinoe explains is that there's these two levels. So level one is the level where we're organized. So the where we actually exist, where we exist within society and culture. And what art does, the thing that, that art does that's amazing is that it takes one to this level two where you're actually able to see that organization. Right. So if you were to think about it with the kite flying, if you were just to go and fly a kite, like just a commercially bought kite, it's just like hanging around your house, you go and fly it, that's kind of more like the level one where you're just like doing yeah. your everyday it's just thing. It's an organized activity. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the level two is what we were doing where there's this level of actually thinking about not the act of flying kites, but thinking about like how you interact with people, being aware of that kind of social structure, um, but thinking about it, it takes one to that level where you start to think about the concepts related to thinking about water and the environment yeah. and fish and climate change. Yeah, so it reorganizes you. So that's what his uh, his point is that art reorganizes our organized activities. Right. And as a consequence, it leads you to look at those organized activities differently as well. So you get this sort of reflexive way of thinking about everyday life is as much part of the experience of art as art itself. And that's the strange tools bit. Yeah, art becomes a strange tool. Right. He says this really nice thing which speaks to the to the kite flying type stuff and the other things that we do is experience, crucially, is not something you get for the price of a museum admission. It's more hard won than that. It's something we achieve through thoughtful and active engagement. So that's the other thing that really immediately spoke to us, which is, he says, an aesthetic, you know, experience, an art experience, an aesthetic experience is more like a conversation with a friend or, you know, it's it's not like the tasting of a flavor. It's something that involves active engagement. And um, I think that's the part that's incredibly useful to help understand what happens when somebody has a meaningful experience at an art gallery, that in terms of as a curator, gallery director and, and you know, public programming, to, to set that up to work what you have to do is set it up to be that conversation, to be that active engagement. 
So if you just come in and expect somebody to passively go around and spend whatever it is, 1.3 seconds per (laughs) artwork, they're not having an active experience. And so whether that's inside the art gallery or whether it's, you know, working on projects that are happening outside that you want to have that active engagement happen. And I think the thing for me also is that people often think of art as being separate. So particularly in North America, that other than indigenous people, indigenous people really get that art is part of your life. But so non-indigenous people in North America think of art as being this frill, that it's like the decoration, um, that it's not essential. And what Alvin Noe talks about is that for art to function, to take you to a level two, to do that reorganization, is it has to arise out of the first level. It has to be part of it. And the part that I particularly like is that he says art is like map making in this respect. And crucially, people don't make maps just for the heck of it. No, they make maps because without them, they get lost. So in particular with Alvin Noe's strange tools, I I liked how he arrives at um, describing art as a strange tool in that, you know, at at this first level, we have technology embedded in all of our organized activities. And art comes along and removes technology or takes an object or takes one of our organized activities and takes it out of its natural context in a way that it perverts the functionality of that activity and in doing so it draws attention to itself and then puts us in a scenario where we're forced to ask questions it's out of place or by drawing that attention to itself it's requiring you to understand and think about the activity that it's yeah uh, yeah you know and I think a really um, good example of that of an art work that's a really good example of that is Christian Markley's The Clock Um, so do you know have you come across that so what Christian Markley did, he, he, it's a 24-hour work. It, ta- it, it lasts for 24 hours. And what he did was he edited together clips from a variety of movies in where the time was visible, like a clock or a watch, or someone said something about the time. And then he put it all together, and the times are all accurate. So it starts, you know, right. at midnight and goes through to midnight, and it plays. And you're meant to go in. You know, either you watch the whole thing, or you go in and watch the 2 o'clock part when it's 2 o'clock in your world. and you So you're watching it in uh, real time. I've been lucky enough to see it twice. I mean, to see it in two different locations, not the watching it for 24 hours. But the thing is, it's about time. And you completely lose track of time. You go into it and you think like any other kind of video you go into, like there's this darkened room. There's some particularly comfy chairs because if people are going to watch for a long time and you go in and you think, well, I'll just kind of like sample a little bit. I'll watch it for 20 minutes. And then you realize like I have meetings to get to. Like the one time I was in Toronto and uh, I was seeing a power plant and I was like, I went to go see that before I had to go off to things. And it was like, I don't want to leave. I I just want to stay here and watch this. But I also realized I had stayed far longer. Like when I checked my own watch or you see it, you see, see it on the screen and you don't really believe it. So you check your own watch and you're like, oh, wow, time has disappeared for me. Right. Yeah. I'm sitting here watching nothing but time. So to get to this perversion thing, he's trying to get you to think about the nature of time and it's about the nature of film. 
right? And right. and and how we relate to both of those things. And he said that he wanted to make an expertly edited film that exposed the fakery of editing. By putting the clips back into real time, it's contradicting what film is and you become aware of how film is constructed, of the devices and tropes that they constantly use. So he says, if someone turns abruptly, you expect someone else to be in the next cut. And he said, if an actor looks down at his watch, you know the next shot is going to be of the watch. Right. But then he did a thing where he's like, if the first clip is in black and white and then the second clip is in colour from a completely different film, you know you've been fooled you now you suddenly right. now recognize the editing process so so there's that organized activity that's being reorganized and then you're reflecting on it you're understanding something about the way film works as an art form and you're also thinking about time and what you and how that works as well so it's really interesting how many of these tropes just come up again and again and again in in movies and you can make a whole 24-hour experience and what you're noticing is the way in which filmmakers are presenting time to you Yes. So you can see bits of it on on YouTube, and so it's, it's an amazing thing. And it just—I right. think it—I think it, com it perfectly illustrates what Chris was just saying about how you make something into a strange tool. Yeah, exactly. Is with a film, it's designed or it's edited in a way that the audience shouldn't really notice the editing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. And he just pulls it yeah. right out, and then all of a sudden you yeah. have to notice it. Yeah. And so that actually, you know, gets to my, my favorite quote from Strange Tools. But art is bad design on purpose. It calls attention to itself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, where design is meant to be invisible to support function. And you yep. never look at a doorknob and ask, what is yep. this? But with art, that's almost a given that you're going to ask, what is this? What does it mean? In uh, Strange Tools, there's an entire chapter. Actually, is it titled Art is So Boring? Or something Art is like Boring that. or something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it means, boring, yeah. He's, he's talking about how much effort art often requires. Yes. yes. Well, I mean, it comes to one thing. The part is the, the idea of starting a conversation. And then the other is that there's this false idea so that art galleries are what... When art galleries fail to connect with people is, or a diversity of people, it's because the idea is that you can just go into the art gallery and have an experience. And that is just completely false. What it's based on is that the, the majority of people who are attending art galleries are well-educated. So they've had the education. They have done art history. Um, they, so they have learned who Jasper Johns is. They've been told this one thing about his work, that he's this great artist. And so the person comes into the gallery and they're actually already equipped with all of this knowledge and context. But the, re but the thing is, the problem is, is that it's a narrow range of people who have that. So people who have got that particular kind of education and then they're able to come in and just experience the art. So if you want to have a diversity of people come then you're going to have to set that context up. You're going to have to do the work to make that happen for them. And then you're also going to want to have that idea of that active engagement so that when they come in, they're not just standing there looking at it and going, okay, I looked at it, but where there's something that it is like that idea of starting a conversation. And yeah. whether it's a conversation just between them and the artist through the artwork, or if it's actually a conversation that they have with somebody who works in the art gallery, who's there to facilitate, or with a friend who they brought to the art gallery, or a stranger who they met when they got no there. Noe also talks about comedians in how that relates to art, in that to be an effective comedian, you have to be so in touch with what your audience knows. I think this is the other thing that Noe says, where he talks about how art is like philosophy. Yeah. And the um uh so 
Peter Hacker, who's a philosopher, he's like one of my favourite philosophers. He's a he's a Wittgensteinian philosopher. He's a big scholar of Wittgenstein. And it's, Wittgenstein talks about these things of like, he talks about forms of life and, and how we act against a background of, of, of you know, shared knowledge. And um, Hacker talks very interestingly about that. But the other thing he says that, that ties, I know, I know he says this somewhere in the book, he sort of says, you know, um, art is not like science in the sense that it doesn't produce new knowledge. It's, it's different. It's what it's trying to produce is new understanding. Mm. It's an effort oh. after understanding. Nice. And, and I think that, and then he has this one, I was at this conference um, in the summer where he was giving a talk and then he had to sort of comment on everyone else's and sort of sum it up. And um, he sort of said, you know, that it's not, it's not like science. It's not trying to produce knowledge. You don't, you don't, you know, that's why, that's why philosophy hasn't made any progress. Everyone says, oh, you know, we've got airplanes and jetpacks and things like now. And yeah. we're still talking about Plato. You know, why hasn't philosophy made progress like science yeah. has? And he right. says, because it's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's to, it's to, it's an effort after understanding. And as because, Times change, technology changes, everything changes. Every generation's need for understanding is different. And so he said, like, each right. generation has to roll their own, which I thought was oh, a really, nice. yeah, a really <laughs> excellent nice. way of putting it. We've been overlooking the possibility that art can be our teacher or at least our collaborator. Not because art is a crypto science, but because it is its own manner of investigation and its own legitimate source of knowledge. So what you were saying, what you're saying is like the the stuff that you were just talking about, Mav, like the, your comedy routines, they, they're, they're again, it's like that's a sort of philosophical thing. It's an effort after understanding. It's like taking this concept and, and going with it, you know, right. taking it to its its ludicrous, you know, um, right. end point so that we understand something about it differently and we see it differently. And that's, and that's why, you know, that's why. So, you know, stand-up comedy is philosophy in that same sense. I guess that's why jokes don't age very well because as soon as time passes, yeah. you need a new yeah. Yeah. interpretation of of that moment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, any school child will tell you that, like Shakespeare, like the jokes just aren't funny. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there yeah. are the. I mean, everyone says, "Oh, it's timeless." Shakespeare is timeless. The themes, right, you know, right. and I think that is true. But then, if you read some of the, you know, like you get to the, you know, there's a, and you're like, what? Yeah. And I mean, then they're normally just some ribald, you know, yeah. slightly off color thing. And yeah. when you get it, you get it. But I mean, it's it's really interesting that the jokes just just don't work. Whereas, you know, Macbeth's ambition and right. Hamlet's indecision and all this right. like that. Yeah, no, we all can still understand yeah. those. Cannot make any sense the, the of the Portuguese humor. man's pants. Ha So Ed Pian introduced us to Marilyn Ann S. Fair. She's an environmental lawyer, and she works on indigenous land and water rights. So we invited her to the You Are Here workshop. She just addresses that idea that, that water is bountiful, that in Canada yeah. we have this unlimited supply of water. I even had that assumption, even though I have this awareness and all the rest of it, Meryl Ann takes that idea of the kind of things that we just take for granted, the assumptions that we just make and, and live with, and actually gets wants to stop and think about it and be aware. Yeah, well, th when she gave her talk and she said something about how much water it takes to make one latte. Yes. It, I can't remember what it was now, but it was a shocking, yeah. it was a shocking amount. Yes. And so she just had a lot of facts and figures like that, of like, this is how much water it takes to do your, and so it was a kind of, it was a sort of, you know, here are all your organized activities, going for a coffee, going to do this, going to do that. Yes. And then she, she just told you exactly how much water 
every single one of those things took and it was it was scary it was just a really yeah. scary yeah um to realize how how much you know that water is so precious and it's the you know we really cannot do without it and the ways in which we just are profligate with it and we don't you know even think about it we take it so much for granted yeah and to also make the point that within Canada there are people who really don't have yes. access to water that you know yes. they have water insecurity and it's a it's a daily struggle and we just sit here and you know drink lattes that, that take yeah. 17 gallons of water to make ultimately it's yeah. kind of shocking it was a truly yeah. shocking thing to be made to realize that well and the other thing that that she talks about so she herself is not indigenous she works with indigenous people she's lo learned a lot about indigenous perspectives and knowledge but she really talks about that you can't that you can't just like the idea of consulting so that you have yeah. to actually collaborate when you work with people i mean and then part of the reason why meryl and really fit with the workshop was because of the work that ed was planning to do yes. was called liquid being and it was it was sort of taking some of those ideas and getting information from Marilyn. And um, the whole point was to have empathy for water. It was this idea that we should think of water as a sentient being, and that was the that's what he was driving towards. So it was really good to have her come. So really, what she did in a way was reveal to us Ed's inspirations for his liquid being project, like that where that had come from. So I thought it was funny when um, in Ed's exhibition where the you know the liquid being and he had that poetic text on the on the yes. wall and it was sort of like it was it was meant to be water talking to humanity yeah and the and text was written the text by was written, written by, by Marilyn and then and then um <laughs> and then Ed was like when he was like oh that's so beautiful and it was all done in crystals yes so you could sort of see there was writing but then you couldn't quite see it and then finally you realized it was and if you got it at the right angle you could read it and then I was like oh Ed that's so lovely and he's like yeah the first one was very angry yes <laughs> He asked, <laughs> asked Meryl Ann to write something from the perspective of water. And the first one she sent, he had to get back to her and say, well, it's it's too angry. Yeah. <laughs> could bit, could yeah. water be a little kinder to humans? <laughs> and really, we don't deserve it. It should no. have been. We, we really don't deserve any. But I mean, he, he, he thought it would be, you know, you, you catch more wasps with honey than vinegar. So it's yeah. one of those kind of things. But um, I mean, I think this project is really good illustration in the sense that it takes a number of everyday activities things that uh, kids do at school like painting and drawing and making things and then you know the kite flying itself and all of those organized activities and then ed put them together to create this project about the fate of freshwater fish and made people think about it in this new and different way you take a step back and suddenly you're looking at those organized behaviors and realizing that through them you're getting an understanding of of something that's sort of bigger than, than just those activities. The Lichen Lab podcast is produced by myself, Marvik Adiser, and the principals of Level 2 Lichen Lab, Christine Clark, Louise Barrett, and Josephine Mills. Our audio engineers are Matthew Erdman, Matt Rutterberg, and Jake Kadike. Funding support for this project is provided by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and Canada Council for the Arts. Visit our website, likeandlab.ca, for show notes and to see more about the ideas and people featured on the show. You can listen to all episodes of Lichen Lab Podcast Season 1 through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.